competitive 40k network presents art of war art of war strategy and tactics discussions with the best players on the planet on the planet with your host paul murphy and expert coach nick nanavati Hey everybody, welcome to an episode of the Art of War podcast. My name is Paul Murphy, your host. I'm joined by Nick Nanavati. And it's time to party. That's what they say. And we are joined by James Kelling, fresh off his win at the U.S. Open Series finale and grand narrative in the best overall category. James, welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. So you actually took Eldari, and with a list I think that is pretty uncommon. You know, some elements that I've not seen as a as like standard inclusions in Eldari list. And you've been, you know, the only time you've done well with it, but you did extremely well, placed uh, against some extremely great competitors. And we want to talk to you about how you did it. Excellent. I, I mean, honestly, I've been having a lot of fun with this list, so I'd love to talk about it. Well, as an Eldar player, James, I'm I'm really excited to see you using such a different array of units. And also, I was pretty surprised you haven't been on the podcast before. You know, you've been around the scene for quite a while, kicking butt all over the place. <laughs> this is part well, one of a two-part episode. Conversation-wise, we're gonna in the very beginning, we're gonna talk about the list. We're gonna talk about some command point usage and burn, and what you start with, and some secondary choices. In part two, we're gonna talk more specific about the matchups themselves, about how you. Uh, you know, beat some of these great lists and great competitors and about how some of these uh, factions and players could be maybe doing something a little bit differently to beat you if they ever encounter you out there or a list like yours. Uh, and that'll be in part two uh, for subscribers. Welcome to the show, everybody. James, welcome. Let's hear about the list. Yeah, great. So do you want me to kind of just step through it here and then uh, go from there? Yeah, tell us what's in it. Yeah, so it changed slightly for uh, the final, mostly because of our paint requirements, but um, it's... Mostly the same that I've been running for a number of events over the last few months. I haven't found a good reason to change it just yet. Right now, what I've been running is just a single battalion, Althway, and it brings two-man Seer Council, and they do have the Seer Council upgrade, pair with Eldrod, and then a Ghost Helm Bike Warlock, so character version of the, of the Seer Council. And then uh, Barry or Beharoth, a single Fire Seer on foot, and... The two Farseers, Eldrod and the Farseer, one brings Guide, Fortune, and Will of Asurian, and then again has a Seer Council upgrade, so pay a CP for that. And then the Farseer has Doom and Fateful Divergence, both on foot. And then I have three Ranger squads to fill up my troop rolls, one with a Wireweave net, squad of Howling Banshees that have the typical kind of upgrades, so Piercing Strikes, Mirror Swords, and then a squad of uh, Scorpions, both minimum-sized with the typical upgrades, so Biting Blade and Crushing Blows on the Exarch. And then... A little bit different. I have um, six Wraith Guard with D sites in this list. I had run seven in the past, and I love the seven, uh, but changed it up a little bit for this. There's and some then, spice we were talking about. Yeah, it's a little bit different from what uh, what people have run. Um, I like how you said you love the seven. Like seven versus six is the controversial part of this unit. <laughs> <laughs> Making great points. Uh, people always ask me why seven, and honestly, it's just kind of where I've landed. It's just right. Um, I don't have a good reason for that, but that's more for later. I have three Shroud Runners, and this is a unit that I really love. Eight Swooping Hawks with no upgrades, and then um, seven Warp Spiders. And then the Exarch is bringing the dual spinners and power blades, as well as surprise assault. And then kind of filling it out with heavy support, I have three D cannons and then a wave serpent um, with twin bright lance. So it's kind of the full there. 1999. Banner so, year. 
<laughs> so you're playing all the way, James. I think that is where we should start off with this conversation before we get into the, how this all comes together. Because that's how all the armies really work, right? They, they're all these moving parts that come together to have an overall game plan that is awesome. So why all right. Well, so, you know, I think prior to the previous changes, Halo Doom was a, a top contender. I think in a lot of ways you could take Althway and still do very, very well, especially into Halo Doom and into the Mirror. I think one of the things that defines the two is Althway is a very, I'd call it defensive playstyle, whereas Halo Doom and then whatever else you might have combined it with previously was a very aggressive playstyle. And I think, you know, they both lent themselves to various measures of success. But I think even in the previous, you know, uh, meta where you could, where Halo Doom was more prominent, where you had other options to compare it with before the points updates i think altway still scored better on the secondaries and a big part of it came down to that six up and vulnerable the combination of the strands dice to be able the ability to carry a fifth strands dice with the warlord trait and then just the utility of the ghost helm and i think that's where the scoring really kind of shown through versus like a halo doom list or some other versions of uh, craft world lists um Going into you know the meta terror at the time, Tyranids having that ability to roll roll up and almost guarantee a psychic interrogation, um, you know, sixty seven percent chance of being undeniable with a strands dice, which you're very likely to get a strands dice of a three, um, made it made it very very reliable. Maybe talk um, about the the fate dice too, because you're you're talking about getting uh, a series of results on your on a random roll yeah so i mean every every craft world list is going to start with every battle round with six dice that they'll roll and they can keep four um and they have various implications so one is an advance a two is a charge a three is an advance uh cast a four is a hit a five is a wound and a six is a save and it just counts as a six for one of those types um the what you roll Oh, sorry. You can re. Sorry, go ahead. I was gonna just talk about the combination you're using it with your your ghost helm or whatever to guarantee it goes off to make it undeniable. Yeah. So with when you roll those dice, you can re-roll a couple of them. You don't like them, but if you get a three on any one of the die rolls, you can save that, and I'll use that for um, the ghost helm guy if I need to. Right? If I don't need to, if there's no way to deny it, or um, I feel pretty confident, um, I'll just roll it naturally and I'll save it for something else, like a doom or a jinx or a protect or something. But if if I need to, like say against tyranids or against like gray knights or thousand suns or an army that can stop my scoring, um, I'll pull the strands dice and on a three or better or, or an unmodified roll of a nine it goes off undeniable. So you use a strands dice to make an, a six on one of the rolls, and then you just roll the other one on a three up or better, you get unmodifiable. goes off. Uh, That's super powerful. But even when that fails, yeah, if you're on one or two, when that fails, you're still getting the plus one to cast with Althway, and so it becomes harder to deny. And so it's a very reliable score. So kind of bringing it back to the, the question why Althway here, I love the way you broke it down, that Halo Doom style is that more offensive style because it's all focused on damage. Althway has a lot of other stuff going on. You know, the five feeling pain versus mortals. You're better at casting. You have access to Eldrad, Ghost Helm. It's just kind of a lot of subtle benefits. Were there other ch- craft roles that crossed your mind? Were those the two big considerations in your head? Yeah, I mean, you've seen, um, you've seen my arm. It's painted up Biltan. Um, and I... <laughs> Town is my first love, um, and I same, think they're very yeah right exactly. It's just it's just a fun lore um, paint style, but um, unfortunately, I think they're probably maybe a different version of Halo of Doom right now. Not quite as I think strong into the meta. Um, they have some neat tricks, but it's more focused on offensive output than it is 
I, I think scoring, and I think that's where Eldar really struggle right now is scoring. Yeah. So the way I typically describe like Ultway versus Halo Doom is very similar, but I think the real benefits to Ultway is they do the the mission the best, their ability to control, because they're pretty much guaranteed their psychic phase output because they have those extra strands of fate dice through Eldrad, the Warlord trait, and uh, you can even take the Weeping Stones if you really want, and you end up getting more reliable plays, kind of like Sisters with their Miracle Dice. Like, everything you want just kind of works. And you're sacrificing offense. You don't have six to hit auto wound or better AP and things like that, Norse cover. But you do have just more reliability in all of your army overall. So it leads to a different kind of play style. Let's talk about that a bit. Yeah, I mean, to your point, I think the number of times that you have, you know, a unit sitting in an objective and they're likely to get removed but you just have a couple of saves on the strands dice and maybe your opponent's dice just kind of don't quite hit averages or whatever it might be. Um, and you're able to actually maintain a foothold on an objective or um, just be in a place maybe with an Exarch um, from a Scorpion or Banshee that is going to cause your opponent problems just because you had those strands dice, you have the Althway six up and vulnerable save and you're able to just drop it and maintain, you know, maybe something that shouldn't have lived, lived as a result. Especially with rangers, rangers are a big one. If you on the, you know, we'll probably get into it later. But on the scout the enemy objective, the number of times a lone ranger has survived based on a, a strands dice of a save six has been, I think, too many or too aggravating for opponents. Yeah, that's that's super frustrating. I can imagine. We'll definitely talk about that. Talking about your list, kind of on a conceptual level, though, before we get into those little details, what did you want it to do? Why this collection of units? How does it all work? I guess. What's the premise? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you guys. Both pointed out the um, the oddity of the D Scythe Wraith Guard, um, and it's weird because the way I talk about them is they're not necessarily essential to the game plan um, once they hit the table, but they are a problem. The list isn't going to rely on them to score, uh, but it does create a sense of they're almost going to come on a deep strike. So I've tried starting them on a strat reserve, I've tried starting them on the board, and they're just too slow, um, even with a advance and five inch movement uh, and the ability to advance and shoot. They just, they're not fast enough to get where they need to be or your opponent can play around them, similar to how they might a Terminator Brick or some other slow-moving, beefy unit. Um, so they almost always come out of Deep Strike, which has CP implications. But the rest of the list is kind of fast or, you know, very MSU-y, where it acts sort of like as a screening kind of mid-board type of play. So, for instance, I have the... Banshees and the Scorpions, and they'll both start in the Wave Serpent. And they will very usually position, not necessarily in my deployment area, but kind of my table territory, my table half, um, in a position where they can counter punch, basically. If something gets too close or gets too close to the neutral zone objectives, they can go reach out and tag it. Now, they're probably going to die, especially the Banshees, after they tag something. So it's usually, you know, they have to be targeting something that's worth it to trade up for. But, you know, if like I said before, if either one of those Exarchs survives, it's just a headache for the opponent. So you have those two kind of combat units that are maintaining a counter punch and around the midboard. The Rangers usually get brought off for scout the enemy. So one's, one will start on the board, the wire weave net unit, and that'll kind of lock down a home objective or try to you know main, maintain some kind of footprint home, where the other two Rangers units will come out of reserve and will try to use those for scout the enemy. Um, if you can get into the opponent's deployment zone by turn three, excellent. If not, it's not a problem. You know, two points a turn, maybe four points on the last turn is kind of a way to think about um, scout the enemy, in my mind. So you have those kind of coming out of reserve on, on the edges. You have the Wraith Guard coming out of Deep Strike. You have the Wave Serpent and the Scorpion's Banshee's position kind of mid-board. 
So then you just have these kind of units that are playing around the edges then with the Hawks, the Spiders, and the Shroud Runners, just trying to pick off the Chaff units, basically the units that are going to go out and do actions or go out and sit objectives or trade for objectives, trying to make sure that my opponent's big stuff forced into the neutral zone or the uh, the main, or main kind of objectives that they're going to need to hold for primary. That's where the decans come into play. That's where the decides come into play. So the decans create that umbrella of about 24 inches. I can usually get them in a position to cover most of the board, most of the neutral zone objectives, if you will. And then the decan, uh, decides coming out of deep strike kind of act as that hammer and then eventually anvil. And it's at that point where, you know, I mentioned before, I don't particularly, they're not essential to the game plan. My opponent is forced to deal with them. Um, they are left alone, you know, six D six strength, 10 AP four. Well, it's only one damage, but mortal wound kickers. But even at strength 10 AP four, it's just going to do a lot of chip damage. So you can't let that sit there. And if you're shooting at them, they require way more effort than, than they're probably worth. Um, and that owes itself to, as you talked about the Althway, uh, reliability and casting, and then the combination of guide, fortune, will of a Syrian, um, or protect off of the, the seer council. Do you have the, you, you ever put the rape guard in the wave serpent? Um, I've considered it on occasion. If they come in and they're in a position and the wave serpent is still alive, um, once the banshees and scorpions are out, I might put them in if I need to ferry them. But I mean, not the like seven niche. unit. I mean, if when, when maybe when you were running them as six, so they can fit in the thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of a niche play. Um, it's it's always possible. I think it's a thing to keep in mind if you need to move them quickly and you don't need them for a turn. But usually, if the Banshees or Scorpions are still around, they're going to be hiding um, because they're just too frail. They'll, they'll get cleared the moment they touch the board. I thought it was interesting that you said you always put the Banshees and the Scorpions in the Serpent. Scorpions infiltrate. Banshees are just super fast with their... Fate dice and auto advance and charge and whatnot. What does the serpent do for them that is better than just wandering them around the board and putting something else in the serpent? Yeah, so I mean that's a really good question because I think I think the the obvious play is to put the scorpions in some kind of forward position and threaten on turn one. I don't I don't particularly need to do that with my list or even want to do that with my list. It's kind of in a way you know if you think of the idea of overextending. Putting the scorpions out there means I have to find a way to support them. I just basically get a, a trade that I have to take, or I have to phantasm them back if I don't like the way it plays out. And I would rather use that phantasm, putting a scout squad into reserve for scout the enemy, or maybe repositioning D cannons, or even repositioning the serpent. Um, the, the big thing about the serpent, obviously, is that you know very few things in an Eldar army are, are durable. In my list, you have the D size are pretty durable, um, and then the wave serpent. That's about it. So it's kind of a, you know, when you think back to Drukari or Harlequin, you can go put the Wave Serpent on something. Um, if it dies, you know, uh, which is, it's tough to kill. It has transhuman. It's got a five up and vulnerable, 13 wounds. Um, if it dies, then the Banshees and Scorpions get out and you can hope they'll hold the objective still. But I think more importantly, the Scorpions on their T3 aren't getting shot up. I mean, at the end of the day, even in cover, T3 one wound with a two up save isn't, isn't impressing anybody. So I play a lot of Eldar myself, James, but I do it very different stylistically to you. I don't really try to lean into the durability of Eldar at all and making it durable with Wraithguard and Fortune and Protect. I don't really play the Avatar, those kinds of things. I mostly just try to take Not Trade and play that kind of game with you. Mm -hmm. What is the durable element of Eldar by you or like award your play style that you can't, that you want it over the fast MSU style? Yeah, honestly, Nick, that's a great question. I think, I think it's just time. Um, 
it forces my opponent to slow down. I think one of the issues that Eldar have is if, you know, sisters do this very well, Necrons might be able to do it to an extent. Uh, Harlequin certainly do it. It's when a craft world list, in my experience, gets kind of rushed in on, it struggles. It needs time to chip away, to kind of play on the edges, to sp- spread out. Yeah, I find my hardest games definitely when a fast army just runs straight at me and I'm going second and then on top of me. Right, exactly. The durability is, you know, it's not it's not gonna be it's not gonna hold back anyone for long, but it might hold back just long enough um to buy you the time you need to get that extra round of shooting. Um and that's kind of where I sit with the wave serpent as well as the D sites. Um you know, we might talk about it later or not, but uh, I'd use the Wave Serpent against Sean Naden to kind of slow down one side of his his advance. Um, orcs are blindingly fast, much more than I thought they would be. Um, but the Wave Serpent managed to hold out, you know, on one side of the board just long enough to to give me that extra time to whittle down, you know, if that makes sense. And that's that's how I I see those two units. That's where I I try to play that basically as a speed bump for my opponent against lists that really just want to get into my lines and, and tear it up. Makes yeah. it makes a lot of sense. So it's kind of like that first layer or second layer that just kind of hits, eats the charge and takes the damage for your opponent for a turn. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to that idea of all play versus, um, you know, like we talked about Halo Doom earlier, right? Like it's much more of a defensive play style. I don't know that it needs to be, but that's kind of where I've landed with it. And so when you, you know, when you compare it to like an MSU go forward and hit probably trade, it's a matter of, you know, where is the engagement happening? Is it happening kind of my territory midboard, or is it happening in my opponent's deployment zone? You know, not to say that this list can't do that. It just, for my comfort, I'm, I guess I'm a more conservative player. I would prefer uh, the extra time, basically, that it affords. No, I, I totally get that. You know, when the enemy's coming on you and you have seven Wraith Guard, six Wraith Guard, and these D cannons ready to counterattack whatever's coming straight at you and Wave Serpent protecting your Banshees and Scorpions, it buys you a lot of time, like you said, to kind of layer your, your defense. Do you find you have issues aggressing onto people once, say, you're down uh, in, as far as mission is concerned? Actually, let, let me hold off on that question because I think that we're just putting the cart in front of the horse. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about how you actually score your points with this army. How do you do that? Yeah, sounds good. So, I mean, I think one of the classic problems of 8th, ninth edition, right, is what do you always take for your third objective? Mine, mine generally start with psychic interrogation, as I mentioned before. I think very rarely is that not a good use, even, and I'll talk a little bit about it later as well, but the combination of the Strands Dice, the Ghost Helm, and then also the CP bonus that you get with psychic interrogation is very, very nice. Um, and there's very rare occasions where it's not a good pick. And just real briefly, I guess the general idea there is, you know, if if they have a lot of HQ, but they can easily hide them, um, that's certainly a consideration that you have to know walking into the match. But that also means that, you know, they're limiting their own abilities uh, by hiding their characters. Well, I guess we can get more into details on it in a little bit, but generally speaking, psychic interrogation, I think, is a good pick. Scout the enemy is usually my number two. Uh, I only have three ranger units, so it can be challenging. It almost always results in me phantasming one or two units of rangers into reserve. So very commonly, I start with little to no CP at the game start. And then I'll look for you know the best option out of bring it down, no prisoners. Uh, it really just depends on the, the matchup. Obviously, Necrons are usually a good no prisoners, sometimes sisters, sometimes Tau. Um, orcs can be. If I can get 
reliably 10 to 11 on no prisoners, I'll usually take that. Uh, Bring It Down is very great against Knights, obviously. Um, They're not an uncommon army in the meta. Um, So there's options there. Um, But if I can't, I'll look to Hidden Path or Behind Enemy Lines. Hidden Path only works on about half of the missions, unfortunately. So there's some challenges there on missions where you can't really use it. Uh, Um, Explain, if you can, in a second, why it only works on half and why it would... Yeah. And which ones those are and which ones they aren't. Yeah, that's yeah. So hidden path um within the secondary, if you're not taking a webway gate, um, which is difficult, I would say. I would recommend not taking a webway gate for hidden path. Oh shots fired. Um, <laughs> it's it's challenging because you have a six inch band that you can deploy the webway gate. And if any terrainer in, is in that that is obstructing you, or if uh, your opponent has any forward deploying units. Um, it can be very, very challenging to place it in such a way that you can actually use the hidden path secondary. If you're not taking the webway gate, what, sh- what you're required to do is to pick an objective that's outside of six inches of your deployment zone. And unfortunately, in four of the maps, um, and I don't, I don't have them, I can pull it up here real quick just to kind of confirm which ones they are. Um, but in four of the maps, you're just not able to select one that's not either the center objective or in your opponent's territory. Um, so if you're looking at it, that's recover the relics, um, tear down their icons, tide of conviction, and then sometimes secure missing artifacts. That's why I say four and a half. So four on secure missing artifacts, that's the one you can move a primary objective. It really just depends on which objective gets moved in which way you can make it so that you can select the, you know, one of the A or B objectives, um, that's furthest away from your deployment zone, um, just depending on how that's moved or who moves it. So you know, sometimes it's five, sometimes it's four, but sometimes you just, you know, you, you can't reliably pick it. And in those instances, I, I don't love it, but I'll try for behind enemy lines. Again, my list is a defensive list. It doesn't want to be necessarily in my opponent's deployment zone. Uh, but if scoring dictates, that's, you know, that's what it'll do. Yeah, thanks for that. I know that you know, picking secondaries can be a struggle because you know you kind of either find some that work and you you try to apply them to every single game, costing yourself a few points, or you know there's there is sometimes you just don't ever know where really what to pick. But for that third is because either your list isn't configured in a certain way, or the opponents you're playing don't kind of allow you to have free reign on that third round pick. This also leads me a bit to the next part of how you score points, which is the primary. Now, usually Elder Armies don't get the luxury of of having much option here. You kind of hold objectives you're able to hold because your army is made of tissue paper. You actually have some more durable elements here. Do you use that to just try to hold objectives in the open much? Yeah, so generally speaking on primaries, I'm going to give up points, turns two, turns three, a little bit more than four or five. And that really comes down to, you know, what's going on with the Serpent with the combat units and then what's going on with the D-sites um, and then and the kind of the umbrella of the D-cannons, right? So generally speaking, my goal is to break even on primary with my opponent and win on secondary. Um, in some cases, that's challenging, obviously, like with Necrons or something like that. And that's a, just a whole different type of game, right? With Necrons, and in a lot of ways, Sisters and Orcs, it's very much just go kill, kill, kill as much as you can, as fast as you can, um, so you can get up on primary. Uh, but in most cases, you know, I'm focused on maintaining primary with my opponent and then winning on the secondaries. And that means trading on the middle or just shooting them, making sure that you know we're, we're matched on primary objectives. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So are you ever just like casting Will on the 7 Wraith Guard and walking into the center objective or not really? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and the thing about the Wraith Guard is if I can, 
you know, they'll get all the buffs and I'll try to put them all of them in cover. And if I can still maintain the objective, um, you have a, a durable OPSEC unit. So, I mean, when you run them down, right, they're T6, they're three wound. Um, in cover, they'll have a one-up save with protect. They'll have fortune for the five-up field no pain. They'll have an alt way, six-up and vulnerable. If you have any strands dice, that'll come into play. But then they're guided. And if they're all in cover and you can set the defend, then you have a very strong, you know, anti-charge unit as well. They're going to be hitting on fives um after setting the defend and then re-rolling with guide so you know you, you punch through about half of your shots on the overwatch at strength 10 ap4 d6 a person so it, it is a very strong anvil unit that again i use in a very mid-board defensive way to to lock down that objective mid-game to late game and it can be a problem-solving unit too off the objectives they sound like a really big utility piece, which I love as a player. The I, I just get stuck at how slow they are compared to the rest of your faction. <laughs> hey, they get yeah. some tricks if you they actually get locked up in combat. So they're not, you know, you could you could pull some some cool things with them. Yeah, I mean, well, and they are they are slow. You're right, and that's you know, I found that the only way I can use them is out of deep strike. Um, if they're coming off the board edge, it's way too easy to screen them back um, and then make them frankly irrelevant if they're coming off your deployment zone you can give your opponent enough time to whittle them down because they are slow they can't get into the positions they want to be in until turns two or three anyway so out of deep strike i think is the only way i would consider taking them and look i mean these are almost 300 points 270 points like we're, we're talking about you know how you have to finagle them and use them like what what is the upside like why are they still in your list yeah so i mean it's part of that speed bump kind of comment that we talked about earlier you, you have to remember that my list is very much based around, I think, in a lot of ways, um, the 3D cannons that sit there. That's where most of my CP will go throughout the game. Um, they will move to be in a position to cover the neutral zone objectives. And so, you know, you the best way to take an objective against D cannons is to take a unit that's 30, 40 points or, you know, 40, 50 points um, that's going to die to a stiff breeze because the D cannons are just going to overkill them every time. And if you take a big unit, you know, something that's worthwhile um, that actually has some bulk and heft to it, it's, it's going to be a risky play to put them in range of, of the 24 inch ignore line of sight, strength 12, AP four D six plus two damage, you know, for D three shots a piece. Yeah. With, with the D cannons in particular, I think Altway is the one of the few armies that that really benefit from them, um, and it's because of the Guardian strat, the plus one to hit. So you kind of get out of ignoring, or you kind of ignore the ignore line of sight penalty, um, at least half of it, which is the ballistic scale modifier. You can still be impacted, but now your opponent requires a lot of investment to kind of get over that. Um, and then with Rangers or even just the reroll ones, you know, it becomes very reliable in the hit. And something I like to do is position at least one of the guns to kind of peek out from obscuring cover. And when you do so, the whole unit gains the benefit of ignoring, you know, of, of true line of sight. And so now you're, you know, if you're using the same strats, you're hitting on twos, re-rolling ones with 3D3 shots at strength 12, AP4, D6 plus two, you know, with mortal wound kickers, which can always be impacted by strands dice as well. So it's just, you know, Nick mentioned utility before. The decans create an umbrella. They create a real no-go zone for my opponent. They have to figure out how to handle them. Um, unfortunately, Tau can do this very easily with their planes. Um, but a lot of armies don't have that. And so you have this D-cannon umbrella with this heavy D-scythe um, unit sitting mid-board, uh, potentially still Banshees and Scorpions ready to counter-charge anything that comes forward. It just creates a, a large no-go zone in the middle of the board for a lot of opponents. I like the way it all comes together. I think that's a real part to Eldar. 
Already yeah, sh- showing some depth in the codex too of, of different different ways to kind of come about this uh, whole Eldari puzzle. Yeah, I think Str- yeah, just like sisters, sisters and Eldar are very similar in how they require all the units to work together to kind of create that greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah, that's one of the things I really love about the Eldari faction. I also play a bit of sisters or haven't in a while, but same thing. The you skipped a lot of the units that people would consider auto includes to some degree. I mean, I'm looking at Dire Avengers and I'm like, where are they? Then <laughs> common units like Wind Riders, you're just not taking those. You had Vipers, Warwalkers, none of that skirmishing stuff, uh, and no Falcons either. Which you know we saw Matt Shookman pilot three of them to the to the finals of the Nova Open in Althway. So clearly, there's a lot of different ways to slice this cake. What's your thoughts on all that? Yeah, you know, each one of those units that you mentioned, I I, I think of them as very aggressive units. Um, you know, the big Falcon thing is deep striking on turn one with a unit um and maybe it's not even forward maybe it's you know more reserved but either way it's a very i would say aggressive unit um with some aggressive capabilities um when you talk about the wind riders things like that obviously they're very mobile um very fast but you know i look at i look at the shroud runners as a superior option again you know nick i go back to your comment about utility and that's one of the things i look at in my Eldar list is what's the utility of this unit? What can it do if I need it to? And Shroud Runners versus Wind Riders, I, I think is no contest. First off, they're hitting on twos, generally speaking, and they all bring a scatter laser and a, and a ranger long rifle. So you're looking at a combined 21 shots for three guys. Um, they're a little bit tougher. They gain cover bonuses and they gain the ranger cover bonus. Um, they come on a four up save. So, you know, all the buffs that are going to go on the D size also apply to the shroud runners on turn one or maybe later in the game you know whether it's protect to make sure they're getting that extra cover or the extra save so they can actually be on a one-up as well fortune and then will of assyrian guide etc all those are potential boosts to the shroud runners which at 105 points i think compares favorably to wind riders and that's before you get into that one cp strat which is crucial at times i think which is in your opponent's move or charge phase one or the other you can select it if it's a non-fly unit, D3 mortal wounds, and then reduce the charge or movement by that same amount. There's a little bit more to the, the mortal wounds piece of it. You know, we don't need to go into details on it. But that does stack with a wire weave net, for instance. And that's just something you're not going to get with wind riders. It's not that same level of utility. When it comes to the hawks, spiders, I think those are fairly common. Um, but for me, you know, the hawks, again, are I, I view them a lot more defensively than I, than I think an aggressive unit, right? They're not going to go forward and claim. They're going to go shoot something in the midboard and then hop back and screen out the deployment zone or something like that. Um, I think the warp spiders are probably the only unit that I look at that go that I go. This is a purely offensive unit, and in a lot of ways, I think they are a utility pick for me because I do need something to go forward and hit something very hard on occasion. War spiders are another unit you don't really see often at all, at least not in this type of list. You know, you might see it in the Norse cover. Um, it, uh, swift strikes type of army or maybe even Bealtan. but what does your army give warp spiders yeah so i think one of the biggest challenges and this is this is very particular uh and recent to this event um unfortunately i could i couldn't paint up two more decannons in time um they were half painted for a long time um, your army is gorgeous by the way too so when you <laughs> mentioned you. <laughs> couldn't get it painted in time you're talking about getting painted to a certain standard that is uh you know That's right you know worth mentioning yeah, and I appreciate it. Yeah, that's right. I couldn't get it fully painted to my standard. Um, and so I dropped them for, you know, a couple other things. One of the D sites um, for Warp Spiders. And Warp Spiders are, you know, they're a challenge in the armor of contempt environment. 
Um, Thousand Suns are a nightmare matchup for them. They can chip through some wounds, but they're not gonna they're not gonna get you know your their their value, if you will. But in a environment where, for instance, Flamers, um, Sisters, Necrons, uh, Harlequins are some of the bigger challenges for my list, I think they're a very good weight of fire option where armor contempt isn't as big of a deal, and the strength six is far more important. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I was one of the biggest challenges to warp spiders is that armor contempt sitting in cover. They're just going to take twos against you, and that sucks. But like you mm-hmm. said, that's, that's not the issues you're, you're faced with. We'll get into all the different matchups in part two as well. Um, so that's when we're going to talk about how you actually overcome the sisters and harlequins and all that. We, we went slightly out of order in this episode, uh, but I do want to talk about the command points. I don't know. There's so much to talk, to talk about. And, you know, it is, you know, kind of how these things, this list weaves in and out of itself and then how it actually plays on the tabletop, you know, is, is a, it's a lot to unpack because the Eldari are a kind of a tricky force. You know, they rely on speed and stealth and, you know, lethality, but only applied when you want to. So we're kind of discussing ways to get that. How many command points do you start the game with typically? Yeah. So the list starts with three. Um, as I said before, one will always go to the D sites for deep strike. Um, I, I've yet to find a reason not to do that. Um, and then that leaves basically two moving into the rest of the deployment, um, which is often going to get used for phantasm either to get a little bit more aggressive, um, or to just pull units into reserve. Um, do you or, always you know, phantasm or do you just, do you look for opportunities not to, to save those CP? Um, I will, I will look for the opportunities, um, uh, but because you know, I view craft worlds as very limited on the secondary picks, and because my army wants to win on secondaries, it's usually the case that I'll have to at least the two ranger units into reserve. And so, I'll, you know, I'll always look for the opportunity to save those CP. But sometimes it's just I, I don't I don't think it's worth it if that makes sense. No, oh, yeah, absolutely. Another thing, I, I well, keep going with your CP. I don't want to derail that. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, like generally speaking, I'm gonna I'm gonna plan on. You know, two CP, but reliably, I, I get three CP a turn. So it's the early game considerations are going to depend on what my opponent's done. And this is something I always tell people who are newer to the game: is you, you, you can approach the game with your plan, and that's fine. Uh, but you have to work with what your opponent gives you every game um, and, and throughout the game. And if my opponent is bringing something that you know I'm a little bit scared of in Deep Strike or in Strat Reserve. It's going to change my CP considerations in the early game. So forewarning becomes far more important. Where I position my D cannons or hawks or you know another unit that might be a forewarning target um, is going to be far more important in terms. That allows two. you to jump in just to, you know, for folks that may not be familiar with Aldari. Is that allows you to zap folks when they come in from deep strike? That's right. Yeah, it's it's within eighteen inches, so it can be. You know, it's it's not guaranteed, and there is troubles in the corners sometimes. But I would I would caveat that by saying it's 18 inches from the unit. You can still fire, like for instance, if three D cannons are strung out, you can still fire the third one at 24 inches. So that'll change the considerations a little bit. Otherwise, my CP is mostly going to go to do one CP strats, things like lightning fast reflexes for the minus one to hit, um, or most commonly with my uh, D cannons, the plus one guardian strat for Althway, or the reroll ones or reroll all hits if they're within 12 inches of a ranger unit so those are kind of the most commonly used strats and then you know where it matters i'll save that cp for either getting Baharoth back up if i have to get aggressive with him or probably you know an overwatch with the d sites or the one cp strat with the shroud runners that i talked about earlier 
the kind of mortal wounds reduce the charge. That does stack with the wire weave net of Rangers, and so you can get a minus five to your charge against an opponent's unit, and that can be game breaking. Yeah, I definitely have dreamt the minus five charge to somebody and just make them fail it. Uh, that's one of my favorites. With your army, though, you mentioned defense, defense, defense. It's kind of the name of the game, almost to the point where you don't really take aggressive units, save for the warp spiders, as you labeled them. When you find yourself in air quotes, losing a game where you're trying to be defensive. And the way you can determine that is a points projection, which we teach how to do in the war room. Where let's say your secondary game is just not that great. Maybe you have top of turn. So if you just sit there, they're going to walk on all the objectives on bottom of turn five. Whatever the causation might be, if you just try to chill and play a defensive game, you're going to lose in the long run. How do you actually get aggressive on your opponent? Yeah, that's a great question. It starts It starts in the pregame. I think you have to identify really around the secondary selection. So you're trying to do a game-long points projection to see if you're going to win or lose this game chilling. Yeah, because I think for me it's a question of how, how much am I going to score on secondaries. I know I can limit your primary, right? Like that To me, that's not a question. I can limit the primary to an extent. You know, certain armies are more of a challenge. We can talk about that later, but... Generally speaking, I'm going to look at, okay, what am I going to get on secondary points reliably at the start of the game? And I'll kind of try to estimate that out. Is it 30? Is it 35? Is it, you know, 40? What do I think my opponent's going to be able to get reliably, right? And, and that reliably is the key part of that. It's it's not necessarily max. It's not if this happens or that happens. It's what do I think reliably is going to happen here? If, if they um, killed every single one of like, their you know, no prisoner points or whatever on you or something, what would the points be? Is that you're, you're talking about here if they after what they've already chosen if they maxed them out or like is there more math involved there no i mean it's it's real it's relatively simple assessment i think and i think it's more, more based on just my experience than it is you know any kind of hard logical you know mathematical calculation but like for instance if my opponent often you know i, I think as a trap you know, I tell them it's a trap. Um, sometimes they'll take assassination because they just don't think they have a better option. Um, and that's 13 points possible for them, right? But reliably, you know, unless things go really badly, and it is a dice game, so this can always happen, it, they might get seven points on it, I think. Maybe two characters, maybe three for nine or ten. So if I think I can reliably get, for instance, like ten on either, you know banners or scout the enemy or something, I, I'm... I'm winning that trade, if that makes sense. So I try to estimate what do I think I can get on secondaries? What is my opponent going to get on secondaries reliably? And I'm comfortable playing a defensive game if I think I can get more on secondaries than my opponent will. If I don't think that's the case, then it starts from turn one, aggressive, aggressive, aggressive. And usually that means more forward deployment. It means uh, more swinging around the edges, um, trying to line up you know, kind of containing my opponent in their deployment zone or, um, you know, in a certain area of the board. And really, that's kind of what that translates to. So it's kind of moving the defense forward, if that makes sense. Yeah, it really does, because you do have to get ahead of it at some point. Do you find that your secondary selection taking something like no prisoners or bring it down, you mentioned those when it's like naturally you'll kind of score a decent score, like bring it down versus knights, no prisoners versus necrons. When you take it against an army where it's like, you just have to kind of work to get a decent score here. Maybe like demons, or if you kill all the demons, you get a 10, but that's killing all the demons. Do you find like you have to get even more aggressive because you know prisoners forces you to act- actively try to kill them? Yeah, it, it, I do. If I can, I'll try to find a more passive secondary. Um, and if that's just not an option, then it's it's you know aggression from the get-go. It's try to box them in. It's try to keep them in a small area of the board. 
maybe I can win on primary. That kind of becomes the the calculus. Yeah, I guess the the idea is rather than trying to table them as your win condition, which often is the case when you have a secondary deficit, try to shift the the focus of the game to primary by getting aggressive and maybe will the banshees and have them contest an objective, something like that. Yeah, I mean it's definitely a mindset shift, right? I mean, so I think I said earlier that I generally look to play balanced on primary and win on secondary, but when that doesn't, you know, when that's not an option the game plan has to change, right? You have to work with what your opponent's giving you. And so it becomes a focus on primary. And I think, you know, we'll probably talk about it later. We saw that a little bit um, at the finale with my games against Andrew. Oh yeah, we're definitely going to spend quite some time unpacking your Tau match after you spent three rounds versus Andrew in the ringer. <laughs> before, the one more question before we move on to that, though. Um, onto your, still onto your secondaries and your primaries. They, You just said your your typical, like your your ideal game plan is to win on secondaries while keeping pace with primaries and like every person i ever talked to with eldar simultaneously has this plan while saying eldar have bad secondary options but if your plan is to win the game on secondaries isn't that a good secondary plan it is you know so i think i think what's interesting about the eldar secondaries you're making a really really good point about this um i i think with Eldar, it's it's not necessarily that the secondaries are terrible, because I don't think they are, right? Like, Psychic Interrogation is such a good general secondary for them, and, like, the Codex option is terrible. Um, and it's a really great way to score reliably with extra CP kickers. It's fantastic. Scout the enemy is pretty good. It can't, you have to build for it, but it's pretty good. As we talked about before, hidden path is, you know, sometimes you just can't take it, period. Like about half the games, you're just not going to be able to take it. Um, so that's tough. It's really, it's like the Wrath of Cain, I think, is that X factor. And this is some one I will select every now and again with this list because I have additional aspects to do shooting. But it feels like when you're playing Craft Worlds on secondaries, if your opponent just focuses on certain units and makes sure that they're kind of taken out of the game, you are just, you, you don't have another option you're you're kind of i think you know when i build my list i like redundancy and there's not a lot of redundancy to the elder secondaries you just don't have good options to score them if certain things happen and that's why I, you know so often I'll, I'll phantasm the rangers off the board because if my opponent can get at them on turn one i am i am in trouble for scout the enemy yeah i find the same thing i'm only playing one ranger unit in my army right now i'm like in theory i could keep it behind a wall and just scout the enemy but you know it's just a ranger squad. I feel that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, if you, if you pick that, there. you're going to you paint a big old target on their back, and your opponent is then almost like served up a a, a mission. Yeah, exactly. I just That's right. That's exactly yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, you, know, you got that air-bursting commander that's just rolling around the board and picking up a ranger unit every turn from 24 inches out. <laughs> you know, you can't do much about it. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying this talk, but we have like a whole other part of the show to do. I feel you. Uh, so, yeah. So I guess we should go ahead and wrap this up here. And if folks are, uh, you know, only listening to this part, please don't forget to leave some five-star reviews, like, share, subscribe, leave some comments down below too. That is a way to like hassle-free support the show. Uh, that way, you know, the algorithms then, you know, kind of get triggered to say, you know, folks are also come and watch and listen to this. And we would really appreciate that. If you okay. are a subscriber, hold tight for part two. That's what we're starting. We're going to get into the matchups. We're going to talk about how to actually beat this list, how you you use it to pilot it to beat other really stout lists. And we're going to talk a lot about the the actual path to victory, this double elimination tournament for 
grand champion of the overall series for the U.S. Open Series for Games Workshops themselves. I'm looking forward Hopefully to it. in part two, it'll be more more cogent instead of my meandering thought process that you're going to get in part one. No, you did great, James. <laughs> Thanks for coming out. <laughs> All right, hold tight, subscribers. Everybody else, we'll see you next week. Uh, subscribers, we'll see you in just a couple of minutes. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com. <laughs>